The Pilgrim Killings by Sabine Shetlam, as read by Andrews Barr. Chapter 4 It was one of those caking, baking Australian summer days. Not like a Singapore heat where a two-block walk would sweat up all one's clothes, but a blaring sun that roughened up the skin. Zimmerman drove back to collect the Jeffreys clan for Lisa's ID. The task he had assigned himself all vied with one another for degree of difficulty like he was performing a complicated Olympic dive. But with each unpleasant duty completed it did all become somewhat easier. By the time he arrived at the house it was decided that only Marinda would come and that made the whole thing, at least for him, a little more palatable. She needed to see her girl. She had on an incongruous floral dress which belied the solemnity of the occasion, and it felt for him like they were out on a date. He held the car door open for her, grasping her hand as if they were embarking down the road on a morbid pas de deux. There were so many inappropriate things he wanted to say, but the long trip was conducted in almost total silence. It was by God's good grace that Messner was not there, and they entered the funereal room after a permitting nod from his nurse. One can only poorly describe the reaction of any parent has to the first sight of the body of a child they never expected to bury. Even when so many elements of it are shared, nothing of the response is practised or trite. Some are vocal and chest-beating, others almost professional mourners as ritualistic as anything one might see in some stereotype turning on the Middle Eastern news network. And still some, like Marinda, are speechless, brimful with tears, spilled from a heart so wounded that there is little for others to say or do except to look down just forward of scuffed shoes and thank the Lord that this time it was not them. She stared at the face of the child, incredulous, unable to process the reason for something so reasonless. Zimmerman gave her the necessary time, time to hold her child's cold hand, time to brush back the fringe off lifeless eyes, time to kiss her soft forehead and time to appreciate that no time was left any more and that no new memories with her would ever be wrought again. All futures were now past and her newfound song of lamentation polluted each tense of living. She nodded the agreement no mother ever wishes to supply and he naturally embraced her. There was no unease in it as he then replaced the ruffled sheet. She signed a short statement acknowledging that this this ex-thing, now defunct, was in fact her daughter, her once child. They slowly returned to the car and then there was no more time to lose in getting out of there. There comes a point in the cycle of hurt when it's simply impossible to inflict any more damage. And as they drove back he broke the news of the necessity of the post-mortem examination, running over some of its more gruesome details. The intolerable blow of her dissection and evisceration and the endless waiting that would soon enough become second nature. The waiting for new things that she had never even thought about and which from then on everything would now hinge. For pathology, microscopy, toxicology, DNA. It was all far too technical and certainly too much for now. But he assured her that it would come out slowly, only in dribs and drabs. Once more over time, this 
New time without her was now all that was left for the narratives of her murder to emerge. Novel, emphatic theories and conclusions. She should be prepared for them, as young Lisa should be prepared in name at least, to be buried many times over. When they returned to her home, she turned to him and gently brushed the back of her hand against his cheek in thank yous. She looked at him like a new replacement child, a transferred affection, nothing more. Zimmerman drove away in a light confusion, telling himself coupling stories of Marinda and him that were not there. He shook his head in disbelief like there was a bug in his ear that now of all times and here of all places he could entertain such lurid thoughts. Without awareness he drove on and on and only stopped a further hour up the road at a bush bar to collect his thoughts and for a contemplative beer removed from any prying collegiate eyes, a place to slowly come back to his senses. The shanty house. The Henrys were waiting for him and on entering an SMS text informed him that Lisa had been picked up by the coroner's office. It was all gradually cleaning up. Henry Henry appeared like everyone's impression of an eccentric professor, an Einsteinian figure, unseasonably dressed in jacket and tie with a wayward shock of thick white wiry hair and an unkempt beard. It was the irreverent countenance of someone long retired. A large, rough, sun-spotted hand greeted Zimmerman, not in a shake but in a sort of hug, grasping him by the upper arm. It was like they had known one another for years. He vigorously announced himself as if they were at a party. Ridiculous name, really. One might have opted for more imaginative parents, eh? He introduced his wife. Should have married a Henrietta. And she obligingly smiled the tolerant smile of a woman who had heard this story a thousand times before. They drove out to the three-kilometre spot on the highway where two days before they had found and photographed Lisa. What possessed you to stop here, Zimmerman inquired. The stretch of bush road looked like any other part of the unwavering landscape. I'm on these blasted diuretics, he said. Have to stop for a piss almost every five minutes. There was an even greater look of anguish on his wife. She had a lot to put up with with this chap, and this was just one more thing. She was lying here, he said, running towards the spot. There was a circular depression against the side of the road, a cut-out gutter with three clear rims around it, probably scooped out by hand as a makeshift grave. The ditch he had predicted when first Zimmerman had seen Lisa was now dried of its brackish water, with the mud against its north-south edges cracked like a skin by the searing heat of the last 48 hours. Can you remember which way she was lying? I mean, where was her head and where her feet? Old Henry, squared, drew his brow into a concentrated furrow and then turned to his wife for stimulus. I can't really recall. Can you, Esther? Naked as the day she was born, right there lying about like she was asleep or something. No attempt to even cover the poor thing up. Henry's wife shook her head in the strongest disapproval. She was adamant that the head had been bent onto her chest at the northern end and the feet had been wedged into the lower part of the ditch closest to the road, packed like an anchovy into place. Zimmerman went over to the edge, pulling out his penknife. On the end where the feet would have been positioned, protruding from the caked mud, there was a small piece of the parchment he had found before on her body. He gently picked at the edges, being careful not to tear it, and it came out as a solid piece which he delicately grasped 
with his stainless steel forceps as the mud fell away in relief. He held the liberated fragment aloft, the size of maybe three large postage stamps, as big as the Magia poster issues he had collected as a child. He wiped it clean of the weathering it had recently received, holding it with his instruments so as not to contaminate it. Reaching inside the glove box to find the Ziploc bag with the other pieces from Lisa's heel, he placed both fragments on an open, sterile container, spinning them around like a child's jigsaw. The two edges finally fitted one another's irregularities, precisely to form a larger square. There was still a significant piece missing from the right-hand side, but it now read again in block-thick capitals with dots and dashes. This even he knew from his old Hebrew class, and he did not need Rabbi Mandelstam for a translation. It had been lodged into his brain from all the parables of the Israelites against the Philistines. One long history of exile and death. An aleph, a tet, a resh, a tzaddik. Tirzach, as it was pronounced, was the imperative. An order to murder. He thought about the silliness of the Hebrew language. It had been such a construct formed in the 1920s by some of its patriarchs, melding the German, the Yiddish, the Polish, the Russian with some English and ancient Hebrew. Could the Greeks have done any better, he thought. It had all been about choice, and the new Israelis had declined the chance to adopt English as their mother tongue, or to write the words of their new vocabulary like the Etruscans had, first from right to left, and then on the succeeding line from left to right and back again. That, he thought, had at least been sensible, to reject their serpentine script. But in the new vernacular of the modern Hebrew there were so many words for death, taken on like an old coat with their journey from ancient killing fields, a shared collective experience where each would speak the struggles of the many. He wrote out all the death verbs he could remember in their Hebrew capitals and alongside each, then in their corresponding Romanized lettering, and he recited them, each of them, as he went along. To kill Laharog, to destroy Lirchos, to annihilate Lahashmid, to liquidate Lachsol, and on and on. All different Hebrew words with different use and different context. Why murder them? Why an imperative decree? Mandelstam, the commentrist's commentrist, will surely know its meaning. It was getting late and he had gained almost all the simple things from the Henrys he had needed, the logistics of any find. And at dusk's intervention amongst the growing shadows, it almost slipped by him. By the way, Henry, what is it that you used to do, for a living, I mean? He was just being polite, really. The old man winked at him and told him of his days in Fremantle as the city's principal gynaecologist. He'd prematurely left the game, as he put it, when the insurance premiums had skyrocketed. I miss it, keeping my hand in, he laughed at another old joke. Those cowboys had so many court cases that it was no longer profitable to practice. So me and Esther just gave it away and travelled this beautiful land, settled in Parbidu of all places. He seemed to be seeking a validation for his life decision. There was none forthcoming. I did look at her legs, he said. Couldn't pry them apart, though. Her big toes were tied together with string for some reason. But I could see between them a little. Well, couldn't help it, in the blood, so to speak. She'd been sexually assaulted, all right. Your pathologist will sort that out. 
but there was so much bruising around the vulva, so much trauma done by a bottle or something, frenzied. Is that your professional conclusion, Zimmerman asked. If we're in a court of public opinion, he said, then, uh, then it is. The amateurs were now the experts. They rounded back into the shanty and Zimmerman said his goodbyes. One more beer, he guessed. Maybe two. The light on the stairs was out and he could see that the door to his room was slightly open. He wished now that he was carrying that Glock standard issue and he also wished he wasn't quite so pissed. He went back to the car and retrieved the pistol, taking the safety off as he loped up the stairs in an exaggerated slow-motion fashion. On entering the room, he nervously held the weapon out in front of him like he had seen in the movies. At straight arm's length distance, fanning it from his extreme right to his extreme left in jerky movements and scanning the room for threats. A perfumed hand came from behind him, pushing away the gun with practised authority, and it fell out of his hand onto the floor. He was inexperienced and easily disarmed in so many ways. It was the blonde policewoman from the station. She was not mucking around. She grabbed his crotch and jiggled him like she was playing with a set of worry beads. Throwing him onto the bed, she loosened off her denim shorts and opened up his zipper, feeling for the start of his hardness. There was no time for niceties. She pulled her underpants aside, gripped him and guided it in, rocking herself backwards and forwards with her eyes closed and a rather indifferent sort of smile on her face. She was used to this, more so than he, and when he came after only a few strokes, she slid off him and quickly pulled on her shorts. What's your name, he asked, but she was already out the door. He did not know what it was about this place, but it felt like it was giving him a brain tumour. Next morning he had a searing headache that throbbed across from one temple to the other. Horrible. This place was horrible. He rapidly showered and dressed, throwing all his clothes into one big tousled bundle and then into a large hold-all. The library he planned and then home. As country libraries go, it was surprisingly good. A large reading room a separate soundproof discussion area, a local and national journals rack, and several computer terminal catalogue outlets, although one had a broken screen. It was noisy and aggravating his head. Little children were running up and down the book aisles, one shouting, another crying. He didn't really know what he was looking for. The sense of locality was all. The computer searches were relatively uninteresting. Drug use in the Pilbara came up a fair bit with a homemade poster telling locals of the bad brain. One on the Wankaringu dream time about an animal turning to salt, like the Bible. Still another on mental illness in northwest Western Australia. Nothing really here. But then there was a book in the catalogue entitled The Catholic Mission in an Aboriginal Land, written by the very Reverend L. M. Pascoe Esquire, M. Divinity, in 1948. He traced it to the top shelf in the corner, a slim, black, hard cover. It had only been lent out once in 1980. In it, the Reverend Gentleman described the forlorn hope that missionaries might somehow civilise the uncivilised. The book held out little real expectation of success with a principal testament for the savageness of the indigenous population was the fundamental disrespect they had, according to Father Pascoe at any rate, for their women. Turning the page, Zimmerman could almost trace the passage of time, an ecclesiastical impression of racism and rights. 
seemed odd to him that they would bang on about the need to civilise something not even deemed by them to be human. There were serious sections on methods to control the noise that the Aboriginal made, on what made them laugh or cry, and the most erudite discussion as to whether they had a soul. It seemed incredible that this was the prevailing morality, but there and amongst it all, there in the briefest of chapters on immorality and the primitive man, was a photograph of one full-blood elder buried in an open circular ditch, with, of all things, his two big toes tied together. Of those feared in life, this was considered the only possible way to hamper the progress of the spirit in death, read the caption. It had added one more clue. There were two other books he found on the history of the Bantu, and he learned that the tribe of the West did not commune with the Pintupi of the East. In it were the harsh realities of the canning stock route that had come into being just after all the states had become a nation. Forcing the natives to become the water guides just as he had been told by that old man back at the shanty. The only reason it seemed why Canning himself had been led off for clapping them all in chains like animals was because everybody else had done precisely the same thing. Jesus Christ, what a fucking place, he thought. No wonder they all stuck together, running as what they called their skins with all their etiquette that that entailed. Where the Panaka could only marry a Karimara and produce Milanka children, or where the Purungu could only wed a Milanka so that the child would be a Karimara. The men cycling back and forth with their women only returning to their own skin after four cycles. He read it all with great interest and had been blissfully unaware of the complexity of their social structure, which they handed down through their voices. Nothing written, for God's sake, and he, he thought, one of the people of the book. When he had finished mucking around as he might have thought it, the sun was downing a little off the dunes and he tossed up the idea that he might walk the short distance back to the police station to see if the nameless girl was there on shift. It might be awkward. She'd have to feign interest and it probably wasn't in her nature. Perhaps he might see some defect in her in the light of day and berate himself, or she and him. She didn't seem the type to regret a quick hump and no doubt it meant more to him than it did to her. He thought better of it pausing past the station and decided not to go in. He barrelled into the car for the long drive to Broome and the flight home to get to Lisa's autopsy. Herbert Atwood was everyone's idea of a pathologist, remarkably thin, emaciated almost, in a way that let his cheekbones appear to peek through their soft tissues, a little ghoulish. Shaking his hand was like shaking a hand of death, cold and skeletal. But to know him, he was a charming man, full of anecdotes from a world most would never travel. And he had those sad stories, parables with a bigger message. Speaking to him, by the finish, most were a little enlightened. He was that sort of bloke. But it was just appearances that were off-putting. Regardless of the circumstances, he was always in a funereal charcoal suit, even at home or on weekends. Perhaps he slept in it, a thin tie, single, Windsor knot, well before it became fashionable. And the short-sleeved white palaco shirt that signalled that he meant business. No loose sleeves for him to get caught up in all those innards. He was like those gynaecologists who wear bow ties, practical and tidy. He'd studied medicine with the best of them, each of them whom had gone on to bigger things, 
stellar careers whilst he sat alone at night in his lab. Neurosurgeons, transplant kings and lauded champions of oncology. His professorship had been slow in coming and in it interspersed with boredom midstream he had taken up a second law degree and then the forensic interest in all matters homicidal. There was no one back then with a training like that. He was always off on some course or other on the science of fingerprints or gene sequencing. What was new in the determination of the time of death or the pharmacodynamics of obscure poisons and the chemistry of spider bikes or snake venoms and the like. Or else at home, firing arrows into pork loins and dissecting them to determine the effect of each trajectory had made into the sinews. It was perfectly possible to picture his hero, the surgeon Lafort, about whom he would bang on and on and whose claim to fame was to sort out the taxonomy of mid-facial fractures by dropping heavy bricks onto the faces of cadavers from a stepladder. Atwood loved it all, all those stories, the sheer gruesome ingenuity. The professorship had come as a recognition of his staying power more than anything else, and his wits, not for any other reason, solving all those government cases over the years, certainly not for his publications, which were quite meagre, for those who wanted to know the impact a tractor blade going at 40 rpm would have on an outstretched arm, though, Atwood was your man. Case in point, one such near esperance just the year before of a farmer so pissed off with the hoons drag racing their motorbikes on his paddocks that he laid a heavy 12 gauge wire from one side to the other, barely visible even up close and bad luck for the next poor bugger who joy rode across his patch of land stopped him cold in his tracks, lifting him clear off the seat and near decapitating him at the Adam's apple. The sharp mark of the wire on the neck made old Atwood experiment in the road trauma cars with some corpses at different velocities to determine the gauge of wire needed to pull the head off at the average speed a hoon would likely ride across any stretch of greenery. When he checked, only one person from Esperance Way had bought that sized baling wire from all the Perth hardware stores in the previous year. Simple, really. Atwood was waiting early for Zimmerman at their rendezvous outside the Royal Perth Hospital's morgue door. The sun was just coming up and it was a crisp morning. He had a steel thermos of hot chocolate, like they were together at summer camp, and he invited Zimmerman to stay for the whole thing. But Zimmerman knew from experience that if he stayed all day, he simply got sick. A silent, frowning attendant appeared almost angry that an outsider had invaded his terrain, slipped under the radar. Or so it seemed as he opened the steel door and they walked into the whitewashed room with its side pull-out panels. Numbers 12 and 19 had small post-its on their front with a date and the, prof the professor pulled out both that would be his day's task with the sound of filing cabinet makes as the metal frames snap into place on their rollers. He yanked on the zippers of the black plastic death sleeves with the giddy excitement of a toddler opening his birthday present. The previous month he had lectured on the case that had woken him about on Christmas Day, of all days. Some young woman, badly decomposed, found under a cement block near a Margaret River construction site. Yuppie vignerons horrified that this was the ignominious start to their new winery. Old Atwood foregoing his family lunch and racing to the morgue to wait with such anticipation until she arrived and pulling open a similar zipper to see the flesh-wrought mess. 
never a happier expression on the face of almost anyone doing anything else, pulling off stray insects with a brand new set of gold tweezers, sheer bliss. At any rate, it's possible to get a measure of the man. He then turned into that dual person, one who could ceaselessly chatter and talk and the other ever vigilant to the clues, like a personable Sherlock Holmes who could seamlessly move from one persona to the next, opining without modesty that these days such skills had gone out of the modern pathologists. Their deductive gene, he was sure, seemed to have been weeded out. And he theorised whenever he got the chance that perhaps that piece of logical machinery was no longer important on any evolutionary scale. He unfurled a little from his armchair. The body speaks, he exclaimed, and turned to Zimmerman. He gave a sideward smile. It was corny, but just like Castiglione, a pathologist's bond across the sea. One might have imagined that as he turned on the dictaphone that there would be more reserve, but it just rendered him more anecdotal, flamboyantly drawing in all those lurid experiences and secrets. The day for the autopsies that included the little Jeffreys girl was filled with photographs and dictating commentary, turning over the bodies and taking snapshots again and again, running his fingers over every little crevice and skin blemish. He had to use the new digital camera and he didn't like it. It needed getting used to. Did I tell you of that case where I diagnosed his cancer just by looking at him? Before we even laparotomised. Zimmerman had heard the story a few times over. Observation, observation, he hummed. If it was something he deemed important, he always said it twice. Now look, the visual impression never goes away. It's the thing that bothers you. If it doesn't fit, he said, and trailed off for effect. You must acquit. Zimmerman interposed disrespectfully before he could complete his sentence, and Atwood gave him a harsh stare. No, young man, this isn't necropsy to the stars. You sleep on it, and if you cannot sleep, then there's something wrong. And if there's something wrong, the whole paradigm is wrong, simply wrong. It must be nice with an infinite set of possibilities to live in such a world of certainty, Zimmerman thought. A kind of religious pathology. Odd how the toes are tied together, he said out loud, grabbing his camera and taking a couple of photos. He cut the string, leaving a small fragment which he dropped into a sterile jar. Zimmerman showed him the copy of the burial photograph he had taken of the old nameless Aboriginal man. Ritualistic Matu might mean that it was an elder. Or pretending to be so, Atwood added. Zimmerman piped up on the tattoo. Japanese! There are many of flowers. Most people like the dragons, skulls and waves. Signs of strength or of the tide of life. Who one's a cherry blossom? Prophetic, really. It means a love of all that is ephemeral. There are so little in bloom, just like her, sadly. Atwood's eclectic interests came to the fore. I think, in fact, you'll find that this is not a cherry blossom at all, but rather a dogwood tree. The two are often confused. In Japanese culture, it signifies the love that conquers adversity, I think. Was there no limit to this man's knowledge? He was rambling, as was his way. In fact, it is the wood of Christianity. It was chosen for the crucifixion cross, but the dogwood itself became so distressed, so the fable goes, that God made it only grow too small to ever be a sacrificial wood. He then began the awful unenviable task of prizing the rigged legs of the youngster apart to examine what Henry had only flippantly described. But now in forensic detail, 
the amount of bruising extending from the outer lips inside up into the mid-vaginal wall and across to the inner thighs, the hematoma between the vagina and the rectum stemming from a full-thickness tear across the fornix that extended into the body of the uterus and later, as he would find out well, into its retaining ligaments. As he was inspecting her there, he casually thought of doing something unseemly to a pig to find out the likely forces involved. Reminds me of a case referred from the Aran Islands when I was in the UK. Mid-80s it was. Thatcher's era. A little girl savaged in the pudenda. No one except that would use that word, Zimmerman thought. Found the canine bristles and DNA. Done by a wolf. Disgusting. Don't really know why it stopped, though. But this, he grunted a little as he was placing his fingers in all orifices, is no wolf, perhaps except in sheep's clothing. He turned to make a point, but it was simply vintage Atwood. Beware of false prophets, he solemnly intoned, as if he were some barrister pleading for someone's mercy, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles. By their fruits you shall know them. He stared at Zimmerman, still mid-digit, and alighted a little off his symbolic pulpit. Gospel of Matthew, old boy, he quietly remarked, coming back to earth. Very well, then, can we get back to it? Zimmerman humoured him a little. It was done with the sort of firm affection a parent might have for a wayward child. Atwood sat bolt upright and stopped his sermonising lest those around him would think him too eccentric rather than what he thought he was himself, a little special. He was confident enough to believe that they were lucky to have him. He then returned to the task. You see, she's clearly been strangled, no question. That was most likely the cause of death. We'll know more with the dissection. Zimmerman always liked that term, dissection. It gave the impression of a gentle teasing away of the tissues, not the ripping and pulling that it usually was. The dilemma is always the ligature, Atwood brought Zimmerman back a little. It's distinction, or might I say it's distinctiveness, you see here? He was drawing a small pencil across the suffusion over her neck. You see the demarcating line of the blood pooling, the deep gouged mark pulled back just so far, as far as the angle of her mandible and no further. He tapped the pencil between points A and B, measuring it out precisely. It's the signature. She was strangled from behind, otherwise there would have been the markings of a circumferential rope or the impressions of some gloved hand, more a throttling. Each little step was triumphant. Zimmerman laid out his own theory about how he had assumed that the assailant was known to Lisa. Both possibilities are consistent. She still could be surprised by a confidant. He liked the words Atwood used. His lectures always had Zimmerman writing something down and checking it in the OED. Atwood turned his attention to the unusual sequential markings that ran from Lisa's mastoid region leisurely across the top of the windpipe and out to the opposite earlobe. One small round, one ellipse, then one round again, a space and over again into five discrete bunches of marks. In the middle, below, the impression of a capital L. He drew the same conclusion as said Zimmerman. Lisa's own necklace, artisanal most like, a one-off probably, perhaps bought at some country auction market stall and hard to trace but sturdy enough to keep together for its task with no loose parts around. So unique perhaps that the murderer had taken it as a keepsake. 
a trophy of the event that was at least fairly common and it went along with the consensus view that the victim was in some way acquainted with her killer. Both Atwood and Zimmerman had exhausted that avenue. Starting as this dissection had said been taught so many years ago, it was now necessary to violate the visible marks they had just discussed. The bruising from the garrote had spread outwards from the back of the trachea and around the esophagus, and the carotid artery on one side had been snapped in half. The impression of the strangling wire had made its way onto the front ligaments of the neck vertebrae in a place where she had been almost decapitated. This had some real sustained and determined force. Nothing would have been around to distract him. Plans, Zimmerman said, getting up. Calculated. Most likely a man, too. Most likely. As calculated as such friends he would have allowed, Atwood sadly acknowledged. But if he were known to her, who in all this frenzy would take his time over it and then violate her in such a way? That even I must admit is unusual. What could she have done to turn an acquaintance into a madman? Or known, Zimmerman added. Walking out, he mumbled, I'll wait for your report, Professor. It'll be a couple of days, drugs, fibres and fluids, you know the drill. At any rate, I see that you're starting to sound like a conspiratorialist. Perfect forensic training material, if I do say so. Zimmerman followed his DC out and smirked as he watched the younger man heave a little on the way to the car park. There was time to see the rabbi. Chapter 5 It was a heavily trafficked trip back to that part of Stirling, Dianella, where Mandelstam had his office. The centre of Perth's Jewish life, at least its orthodox at any rate. There was a radical shift in the landscape as he rounded into this little religious enclave. The houses were more Georgian in style, and the men wore traditional cut black suits and Homburg hats with their long overcoats trailing onto the ground. Tasseled, cream-coloured prayer shawls peeked out from behind dark vestments as reminders of their adherence, and there were straggly ginger-bearded workers with their sleeves rolled up around strong, muscular arms, lifting oily wooden boxes of fish. The wigged, pregnant women pushed their fully occupied tandem prams, just waiting for the next one to drop. What made them all seem happier to live like this, these Hussids, he did not know. To look just like some cherished Polish ideal from another age and landed here just so. Even he felt out of place here and they were his people. He stood out for his seeming normality elsewhere. He laughed inwardly as he briefly became lost in amongst his own Pennsylvania Dutch. The singing sound of Yiddish reared up on every street corner. It wasn't something one might hear in any other part of town. The small boys were rigidly hurried along the streets by their elders, their long, untrimmed sidelocks flailing across their faces as they turned in obedience to the intonation of their masters. It was a place of benign but vigilant control. He followed the street numbers in a nonchalant manner so as to appear as minimally inquisitive as possible, displaying the weak confidence of someone who only gives the impression that he belongs. He finally hit upon the school of zealotry, the Chabad house. Soon enough he would learn that nothing was original here, a mere house of commentary and interpretation. He could hear the cadence of the young men in prayer, the mantras sound, music to their teachers' ears, as much as the singing recitations of all the verb conjugates might seem to any Latin master. 
the little men swaying backwards and then bent forwards obedient to an inner rhythmic beat. These were young enthusiasts that he usually avoided. They would stand on street corners, hopping from one foot to the other, singing their Hebrew psalms and inviting perfect strangers to wind the leather straps around their arms and place on their heads the little phylacteries crammed with some devotional note. They scared him, and yet they were his brothers. He feared them as much as any voluble televangelist, and they made him a little mournful that he could never really believe in it all, no matter how much he was prodded. Mandelston popped his head out from the side wall that was the entrance to a minuscule office, a little catacomb. Both men manoeuvred themselves around piles of Russian journals stacked up against all the available wall space. Mandelson greeted him warmly with a soft hug. Adush, he shouted. It was a European nickname for his friend that he had made up. The embrace was soon accompanied by a forceful clasp of Zimmerman's cheek between the rabbi's forefinger and thumb just as the Jewish grandmothers do. Zimmerman pinched him back and they both laughed the good laugh of an undemanding friendship. They'd been greeting one another like that since the days of middle school, but Mandelstam had taken the high road, a spiritualist, a sage. Zimmerman felt a little flat. What had he done except figured out what lay behind a few random killings? Oh, and bedded the captain of the girls' volleyball team. The Mandelstams and their related Mandelbroths were embedded into Poznan's great synagogue, Poland's pride and joy. His father and his father and grandfather before him had sung as cantors on the high holy days, each calling their respective congregations to prayer. The songs were steeped in his bloodline, rocking the children to sleep with the hallowed stories of the great kings, David and Saul. Mandelson would sometimes catch himself humming them in habit and in reverence. The warm comfort of echoed parables held close in all their faithful repetitions. It was time to get down to work and Zimmerman produced the two pieces of vellum, twisting them around so that they could precisely fit together. Mandelstam poured over the fragment as if it were part of a Dead Sea scroll captured from the Qumran scenes. There was a lot of poring over things in the Torah study classes. A lot of debate over the meaning of some small extension or squiggle. Zimmerman imagined that somewhere a Chinese or Japanese class might, halfway around the world, be doing much the same sort of thing. Well, firstly, you presented to me upside down, and he righted the pieces. It is Tirchach to murder. Zimmerman told him that he knew that. Well, actually, it is not to murder. Here on the right is the Aleph, with a small vowel above it. That is the O sound. There is... A part missing, quite a lot missing. He pointed it all out under a large magnifying lens, moving a pencil from right to left, as if he were teaching the reading of some part of the cherished Torah scroll. Zimmerman felt like he was back at his bar mitzvah training when the rabbis would scold his singing and his inability to follow the ornamental hand that they used in the services. He never could trace the letters properly, and the small recitation he had made in front of his proud parents all those years ago on that fateful day, had to be memorised by heart. He found the language traumatic. Well, the letter missing is the Lamed, or L, so that it should read Lo, which means no or not. In the imperative, it is a command not to do it. Mandelstam explained to him as though he were a small child, and Zimmerman sensed that the space between patience and irritation had narrowed. 
Still, he could not understand its significance. I, I, I'm not sure how that helps me. Well, it's an order, part of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, our ten things, our ten sayings, as we might record the orders. They are the united tablets. He wrote out in cursive Hebrew the starting letters that signalled each commandment to emphasise the point, speeding his way through each as if he was in front of the sort of audience with knowledge of the basics. He was mystifying Zimmerman, who tried vainly to copy it all down. There's a fair part missing, of course. Just that bit is in our beloved Torah, the Sixth Commandment. But in the Christian Augustan version, I believe, and I think the Catholic Catechism and the Lutherans, it's actually the Fifth Commandment. He was off now on one of his lectures, but it was likely important. Zimmerman made more notes as it transformed into a monologue. I'd have to think now who, apart from us, does not use it as the Fifth Commandment. He started pulling at some of the books behind a glass case. Here, he said, dragging out a large text that seemed to be stabilising all the others. A number of them fell over. Never mind, here it is, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of our Old Testament. It was cherished by their apostolic fathers. He seemed in full swing. It is the Seventy, for the Seventy greatest Judaic scholars who had translated the five great books of Moses, and then after, the Greek translated back again into Hebrew, third century, but there's hardly anything left of it. There it is, the seventh commandment. You see? Seven from seventy. There now, a little Kabbalistic madness. Mandelstam had suddenly moved to the world inhabited by the Jewish sorcerers and spiritualists. Zimmerman had read of the Kabbalah's hold on Jewish mystics and of its loose interpretive style. In it he had heard all words and numbers and all numbers, codes. Oh, come now, Zimmerman replied, not this Jewish mysticism, blah. Mandelstam frowned a little. If it's good enough for Madonna, it's good enough for you, he laughed out loud. The Kabbalah is so much more than numbers. As you know, each Hebrew letter has its own value, but the shaping of each letter has a spiritual value as well. The points and dots that we spend so much time hunched over are more than that. They are the lights which leave our bodies, and the letters are our memories coming back. He apologised that even he did not know much about the world of the Hebrew mystics, of ciphers and cryptograms. But what I do know of it is that how the meanings of totally disparate words with the same numerical summation may be linked. It is the covenant from God and his code. Whatever that is, our Christian brothers, to be fair, have been trying to decode us almost since the beginning of time. I can tell you with some sadness that all my reading of the Torah and its commentaries may be wrong, because I've failed to understand this code. Anyway, I have it here somewhere. He pulled out a small piece of paper with a Kabbalistic reckoning and gave it to Zimmerman. Maybe this is important. It was a page of every letter with numbers attached to it. Final letters, Alephs, Yods, Hafs, Lamads, Reishas. Mandelstam extracted an even larger textbook and thumbed through it at speed whilst Zimmerman pondered over the alphabetical numerology of the deciphered words Lotirzach. 30 plus 1, 400 plus 200, add 90 plus 8. That's 729, so... Here too, Mandelstam pointed to the relevant passage. He was back into their earlier discussion. I knew it. It's the sixth commandment here in the Calvinist Bible and also in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Does that help you any further? And 729, what, what might that mean? Zimmerman was begging a little. It was overwhelming him. Mandelstam scanned the piece of paper. 
Well, it's not in the whole number, but in its parts. 7 plus 2 plus 9 is 18. That is the symbol for life, as you most certainly know. Life and death, you see. Zimmerman remembered how often he had lifted a glass of wine to the sound of l'chaim, to life. It was always voiced as its double, l'chaim, l'chaim, in all toasts spoken once for the body and once for the soul. Chai, or life, was always identified with the number 18. Always any Jew's lucky number inclusion in the lottery. He knew that, and chastised himself for forgetting. It was all becoming numbers. The recurring number five, too, might have been important. The fifth commandment, the five books of Moses, the five bunches of marks on Lisa's neck. Who knows? For the moment, Zimmerman put it to the back of his mind, shaking his head a little. And the parchment, is he? Even though the rabbi and Zimmerman had been childhood friends, the informality irked, and Zimmerman apologised lightly. Mandelson continued, I'm no expert. Your people can assess this. Not so common, but we still use it for our scrolls. Zimmerman had already made his cheques, cutting out a small corner and sending it FedEx to the Harvesty bookbinders of Sydney, asking them to determine if there was anything unique. They had faxed him back that it was paper vellum made from synthetic cotton, favoured by architects and such for tracing and durability. He thanked the rabbi who could not help himself to pontificate one more time, it was in his nature to philosophise. For us, as you may know, there is killing, and then there is killing. One, your one here, is the premeditated act. It is your equivalent of the first degree. But then for a peoples like ours, there is a justified killing, as in wars. That is only there for those whose very existence has been rapid, repeatedly threatened. In our own war of independence, for example, perhaps even sanctified by God himself, some may think. In leaving, he grabbed Zimmerman by the sleeve. Do you know that in the Torah the first commandment is always quoted as, Thou shalt have no other gods before me? But in Exodus he actually says, Do not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. Imagine that. He creates man, but is himself infused with the human trait of jealousy. Zimmerman struggled to reel in Mandelson's thoughts, as the door slammed shut. He was suddenly back out in the dry heat. He needed to leave the world of fables and legends. He was developing a thumping headache and felt a little sick at the prospect of returning to Atwood's mausoleum, deciding for the moment to miss any further wash-up on little Lisa and to wait the few days for the formal autopsy report. Too much information. Too much information.